for the next four weeks, we're going to be doing a series called Questions, because um, as we got through Blueprint, we had the feeling that um, this is a good time to say, okay, what questions do you have that just aren't getting answered? Um, and so one week, everybody handed in their, they wrote something down and handed it in. We collated them, and another, another week, you got to vote with the top 10 or 12, which you wanted to hear about. And the top four questions are God's sovereignty and what way God's rule changes like our free will and why is there suffering and why me, Lord, and all that stuff, to the Holy Spirit. In what way is God with us? Um, and in what way does that change the way we spiritually fight the battles of our lives in conjunction with God's spirit, sometimes called spiritual warfare? The third um, had to do with homosexuality and other orientatedness. And some, something about how to Christianly think about that, but a lot of it because of like court cases and stuff now, um, how are we going to live publicly in a relationship to this? What do we do? Do I, do I go to a gay wedding when I'm invited? Do I, how do I respond when I'm this, that kind of stuff? And then the last is how, is how does the church relate to society? Like we, how do we relate to the world around us? It seems like there's, there's like a real gap in what do we do? How do we, how does the church live in the world? Um, and so Lloyd is going to do that second one on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to do the other three. We'll do those over the next four weeks. Um, and you can tell me if it was great. This morning, we're going to do the sovereignty of God. And um, because some of the other stuff in the service is long, it's going to have to be, you know, it'll be like 20 minutes, right? So um, there's a number of questions when, when Christians affirm and Christians should affirm that God is sovereign and provident, meaning that God is the sovereign, that is the ruler, he is king of all things, that God really is um, exactly as in control as he wants to be. He is sovereign over everything. He's right, everything rightfully falls under his jurisdiction, and everything is as affected by his power exactly as he wants it to be. He is sovereign. And he, and he rules the working of the world in conjunction with his providence, where he is taking his own creation. Now, when you affirm that, um, there's a number of questions that people tend to ask in relationship to that, and these are some of the ones verbatim that came in. So, it, why create man or humanity if he knew what would happen? Like, if he knew it was going to, this was going to, why would he even do anything? It's just, just created, like, unicorns, you know? Or, just why me, Lord? That's a pretty straightforward one. Or, how does God choose, yet we still have a choice? Like, if God providentially predestines or decrees the realities, in what ways do our, our choice me, choices meaningful? And if our choices aren't meaningful, then how can we be held morally responsible, which the Bible says everywhere we are, right? Or how does God, how is it that God changes his mind? There's a couple of passages in scripture where God seems to say he's changing his mind, and that seems odd for somebody who is providential. Or how does God work in the world? What does he mess with and what doesn't he? Or prayer. Prayer doesn't seem to be enough to restrain and fight evil. Why does God, why doesn't God respond to it more? Now that's actually an interesting one this week. Do you know why? So remember last week we had day of prayer for the persecuted church where we prayed for um, the church everywhere, especially in countries where it's most oppressed, and also for the religious freedom of all people, but specifically for the people we're bound with um, in spiritual family. And um, totally unrelated to that, right? And so, so in fact, there were, there were a lot of people here for the prayer meeting on Wednesday. The youth ministry came and prayed through the stations. There were probably, I don't know, there were two or three small groups that came here and said doing their other meeting. There were a lot of people here praying, and people all over the world, Christians praying, and completely unrelated to this, after holding people for two years, North Korea decided this week, just on Saturday, 
that they would release the last two Americans they had in their custody, including one, at least that's a missionary. Right? So I, it, the issue with prayer, you can clap if you want to. I just, I'll just, it's fine. Um, the issue with prayer may actually be, it doesn't seem to be a big enough in a relationship to the results we see. Right? So, and then the last one is, how do we cope with not understanding God's promises fully? Like, he's told us some, but he hasn't told us everything. So what, how do you cope with someone who's sovereign but doesn't tell you the whole story? And you've got to figure out what to do and so on. In Acts 15, there's this verse where the church in Jerusalem is writing to some churches where somebody has come in and told them to believe something they really shouldn't have. Um, and he's, they write a letter, and this is how they, the first line, we have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. The issues related to God's sovereignty, you see, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, when you mature in the Christian faith, I think, as fully as we can, becomes one of the great joys of your life. The idea that you are serving a God who actually is in charge and in control and sovereign over all things becomes one of the greatest comforts, especially in the worst possible times. That is not how everybody feels. <laughs> not even everybody in this room who is a Christian, right? There are rational objections that are, that are, that are problems, whether it's the one of um, the issue of like divine direction versus our responsibility. Actually, um, we'll have a blog up later today where I talk about that a little bit more because I'm not gonna talk about it right now. And then the other one about um, why doesn't God stop more evil or force more good? In relationship to that really is the emotional objection. And you have to put these two together because we are not, we just aren't floating brains, right? Human beings just are not objective rationalities. And one of the greatest deceptions of being a human being is feeling like we're thinking really rational, even when we aren't at all, right? Have you ever talked to somebody who's just lost someone? Right? Somebody who's just had somebody very close to them die. And um, I say I do funerals, so I see this all the time. So somebody dies, and the, the widow is there, and somebody comes through, and she says to the widow, who is a Christian, her husband was a Christian, at least he's in a better place now. Right? And they move on. And this is one of the reasons why when you go to things like that, it's often better to say nothing. Here's why. Because the grieving person doesn't realize that they're flipped all around mentally and they're not thinking rationally at all. And when that happens, one of the delusions of the human mind is you feel like you're thinking rationally for the first time ever. Right? I'm finally thinking rationally. Right? And they're not thinking rationally. And what happens is you can say something like that and they'll be like, oh, it's like they don't even know he was suffering or what it's going to be like for me to be without him. Right? That's how people respond. I don't know if you've ever seen this. That's how people respond. And they're like, how could they say that? And that's so insensitive. And and like when you're the pastor, you, you got to be like, mm-hmm, yeah, whew, yeah I, I, I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you. you. Because they're not capable of hearing that they're flying off the handle because they feel like they're being incredibly rational. And the other person just didn't think before they talked. Even though if you had talked to her two years ago and said, when people suffer and they're Christians and they do finally die, are they in a better place after that? She would have gone, well, yeah. Right? And so one of the reasons why we struggle so much with the idea of the problem of suffering is actually not that the logical argument is so good. That's one of the funniest things about this. People think that the argument for the problem of suffering is like the best argument against Christianity. It's actually really not very good. Um, I would be willing to bet that if we were all androids— 
We were completely emotionally indifferent to the suffering of others. We were simply rationally calculating whether or not God's explanation for where he's taking reality and what suffering actually means could be understood in comparison to the amount of suffering that there actually is. If we were all androids, I think we'd all kind of shrug our shoulders and be like, well, if God is real and those things the Bible says are true, then there's no problem with suffering. The problem is this. We see suffering and we haven't tasted glory. And it creates a situation that is emotionally impossible. Because I have gone to the Dominican Republic and I have watched a 21-year-old who is both physically and mentally disabled writhe on the floor while helpers were trying to love her and care for her while they were changing her diaper and so on. I've seen that. And I have never seen anybody in glory released from physical suffering in the ultimate end of the full entrance of the kingdom of God. And so the emotional weight of, any, of a psychologically healthy empathy batters so strongly against the objective claim of the proposition of our theological belief that most emotionally healthy human beings cannot bear that battery. And so people just go, well, God, why doesn't God do more? Right? But it's action, and it feels at that moment like you're being rational for the first time ever. Like it's like it's so clear. And here's why. Because when you're emotional, your mind oversimplifies things, and it does feel clearer. It's because you're making lots of logical mistakes. And the, the, the troubledness of mind comes from a conjunction of not really understanding the Christian doctrine of God's providence and therefore its relationship to suffering, and the emotional weight of a horrific amount of actual real human misery and the fact that we have not experienced the end of the story. Now, you can cynically say, well, the end of the story is probably not going to happen. That's just wishful thinking. Well, maybe it is. But if you're going to evaluate Christian faith on its own terms, on its own terms, within its own terms and its coherency, there is an end. That is the glorification of all who trust in and follow Christ in the remaking of creation, and that lasts a heck of a lot longer is a heck of a lot more profound than anything we could have experienced here. Now, what it also faces is the whole issue and question of how do you live? If you believe that God is the sovereign king and ruler of all things, you actually are going to live a lot differently than if you don't. Because you will believe that you are deeply responsible to the direction and will of that king rather than that you are autonomous and that you can do whatever you want. Even if you believe what you want is moral and good and truthful. One of the ways this has come up very recently is the young woman who um, had the diagnosis of brain cancer and decided to go to Oregon to have a physician-assisted suicide. And this is one of the inspirational quotes from her that has made its way around the internet. I believe this is, an eth this is ethical, and what makes it ethical is that it is a choice. Okay, thank you, Jean-Paul Sartre, right? I mean, um, but the, see, the, the concept there, that only makes sense if you believe in the human moral meaningfulness of decisions comes from the fact of human autonomy. Because there is nothing higher than us, therefore, what matters is whether or not we make a decision and whether or not that, that decision can be referred to as authentic in some way. That's perfectly consistent within that worldview. Uh, 
But there is, there's a man that you, some of you have prayed for because his name has been in our bulletin with the exact same diagnosis as her, who instead of traveling across the country and receiving a physician-assisted suicide, has decided to show his daughter and his wife and everybody living around him how a Christian man dies. And we as a church have tried to round up people to help and give respite to his wife and try to get in there and help him and do what we can. And that is our duty because dignity is not a gift that you give yourself, Christianly speaking. Dignity is a gift that others give you by the way they treat you because they believe you already possess it as a creature created in the image of God. Now, um, I'm not going to go into that any more than that, but there actually is a 13-week um, Sunday class that's going to be coming up that's going to focus on Christian ethics, something that we don't get to spend a lot of time on um, in sermons. But I would really encourage you to think about that class. There's going to be um, a doctor and one of the businessmen in our church are going to teach it. They're going to cover bioethics and business ethics as well as just normal Christian ethics. I'd really encourage you to take that. It'll be very clarifying for you, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, I'm going to skip this right now. We should believe in providence and sovereignty. I've already defined them. It, though we feel like, because of our unhappiness and the suffering we see, that you can only choose that God is either sovereign or good, here's the, here's the problem that we face in Scripture. Scripture affirms all three of the realities we think we see. It affirms that God is absolutely sovereign. He is king and in control of all things. It affirms that he is good and loving and it affirms that human experience is in absolute disarray. It is full of suffering and misery and brokenness and pain, natural disaster, and self-inflicted wounds. It affirms all three of those. And it claims flatly all the way through that they are, th those do not produce a contradiction or a successful attack against God's beauty and glory and goodness. Now, there's... There's all kinds of things that could be said. We could do a 12-week series on all the different questions people could bring up in relationship to the sovereignty of God. But, at, but you can frankly go to YouTube and look, put, type in sovereignty of God in R.C. Sproul or something, or go to the blog that we'll put up. It'll have some links in it. And, or you could, okay, here's crazy. You could go to the church library and pull out a systematic theology and read on God's providence, right? When, when I read those and when I watched the YouTube videos. I watched a, a debate between Christopher Hitchens and Bill Craig this week. One of the things that never comes up, and it's not going to come up in a debate on atheism, but one of the things that doesn't seem to come up when people talk about God's goodness are two things that I think actually are subtext to all of it. And I think that if you don't face these two questions, there's no way that you can stably believe Christianly and deeply grow in your faith. So th this is what I'm going to talk about this morning. The first is that the God of the Bible is a God who speaks and shows himself and who virtually never explains himself. The God of the Bible is a God who speaks and shows himself, but virtually never explains himself. Now, one of the most important things to recognize, because when we say, why me, Lord? Why? Why? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why don't you do this? In every case, the subtext here is what we're asking for is an explanation, right? Would you, God, if you are really there— would you explain what in heaven's name you're doing? Right? Now, one of the things that's important to recognize about an explanation is relationally speaking, an explanation is a substitute for trust. Relationally speaking, an explanation is a substitute for trust. 
Yet, if you read through the whole of the Bible and the way God interacts with human beings, what is the one human response and dictate that God, it's the one thing that everything else flows from, and the one thing that is required in the relationship between the person who is God and the person who is the human, right? There's, there's really one clear maximum thing, and that is that the human person trusts him. That's it. Everything else flows out of that trust. Salvation comes by that trust. All of God's blessings come by that trust. All of God's direction, being part of God's plan of redemption, everything ultimately comes from the belief that God is big enough and good enough that you can trust him. In fact, let me just say this for those of you who are parenting young children. I've got a two-year-old right now. One of the most important things to inculcate in kids, especially under about five years old, is that Sweetie, I know better than you, and I love you, therefore you can trust me. One of the parenting talks that I put up um, some years back, um, one of the guys, um, he's a, he was a grandfather at the time, and his, two year, there was his two-year-old grandson wanted to go out and do the rest of the things that, that were happening this evening with the older kids. And he was like pitching a fit and, and throwing a fit that he couldn't go, and he was so angry, and he wanted an explanation. I mean, as a two-year-old, Still does. I mean, we all, from, from the minute we can demand one until we die, we want explanations, right? And he, he took this child, and he was very tender, but he said, listen, Billy, um, Grandpa knows what's best, because he, he was going to go home with the grandparents so the parents could take the other kids out. Grandpa knows what's best for you and loves you. You can trust me, right? Now, you see, that is called integrative theology and parenting. Because as a parent, you should know more than your kids, and you should love them and know what's best for them, and they should be able to trust you. The dynamics of kids making choices, this is why I'm against choice-based parenting for very young children. Yes, when they're teenagers, junior high, yes, choice-based parenting. Consequently, absolutely not five and under. They have to understand sovereignty, otherwise you're gutting their ability because you're teaching them they're autonomous. They're not. They're a dependent creature on a divine father, and you should not be teaching them that they're autonomous because they aren't. Once they recognize how you live and embrace sovereignty, then they will learn how to live with responsibility because they have to make choices. What is developmental for our kids is also developmental for our spirituality. And what we need to recognize is, is that one of the reasons probably God shows himself but doesn't explain himself is because you need to have somebody speak and show for you to trust them. If you're going to trust God, you've got to know something about God. And so God very lovingly gives us exactly what we need. He tells us about himself and he shows us about himself so that we have everything we need for the one thing we have to do. That is, trust him. But the explanations we want about what he's doing, he just flatly doesn't give them. And here's the thing. If ultimately you can't make peace with that, you can't believe in a sovereign loving God that is bringing the world to a place in this person. You can't be a Christian. One of the probably best examples of this in the Bible, there's a bunch of examples of this in the Bible, but the, but the most glaring is in the book of Job. In the book of Job, we, the readers, are even told what God is doing. We get the explanation. 
Job doesn't, but Job, Job already knows who God is because he trusts him. The whole beginning of the book says that he's the most righteous man on earth because he fears God and shuns evil. That is, he knows who God is, he knows what God dictates, he trusts in God, and he does what is right, and he doesn't do what isn't. That is, he trusts him because he knows him, and then God does this thing to him, and God, and all through the book of Job, what does Job ask for? He wants an audience with God so he can plead his case so that God can give him what? An explanation. And what happens at the end of Job? Right? He demands an explanation from Job, right? That's what happens. He says, where were you when I made everything? And there's all these actually relatively sarcastic and you could argue proportionally mean questions from God where he's just basically, listen, you're totally unqualified. To demand an explanation Totally unqualified Right Either you're going to trust me or you're not You're not getting an explanation But God, but what did God do At the end of Job? He spoke and he showed himself He gave Job Reason to believe he wasn't abandoned God did exist and God did love him And that he could be trusted But he didn't give him anything else That is normal human experience with God And you might expect it if your view of God was big enough. But our view of God is so small and our feelings of right that we can demand things from him so much and we're so hurt that we're crazy enough to believe that we're finally thinking straight for the first time when we start to demand explanations of him. And it's actually when we're most insane. If you haven't read these or read these to your kids, the Narnia Chronicles are really good on this because one of the things that Lewis puts in the mouth of Aslan, the lion that represents Christ, is um, Aslan is there. He speaks and he shows himself when it's necessary, just enough for the children to trust him. But there's two things he never does. He never explains himself and he never tells the children what would have happened if they had obeyed better. There's actually two places where one of the children will ask Aslan, what would have happened if I had obeyed then? And he says, beloved, you never get to know that. Insinuating he knew, but he was never going to tell her. And one of the things all of us are going to have to face if we're going to consider really being Christians or enjoying being Christians or get to the point in our Christian faith where God's sovereignty is actually one of the things, the truths we cherish most rather than rail against most is when you realize the God of the scriptures and the God of Jesus Christ and the God who is in the man God of Jesus Christ is a God who speaks and shows himself beautifully, powerfully, repeatedly, and yet never explains himself. And when you realize that, you'll, you'll finally realize what it means to be a creature and what it means that he's God and the dynamic between you and God will be unleashed into the beauty it was meant to be. But not until you deal with that. And the second is, is that God has purpose in the dynamic between his self-revelation and his hiddenness. Um, most Christians believe that God has purpose in his self-revelation. He had a purpose in sending Christ. He had a purpose in revealing the scriptures. He had a purpose in his actions and history. He had a purpose in creating the world. But they don't often think that God has a very specific self-understood purpose for the extent of his hiddenness. He does. 
God is exactly as hidden as God believes it is appropriate to be at this point in salvation history. And you could spend less time being angry about that during your prayer times. And when you're decision-making, when you're wondering why God isn't doing more or showing more or being more or whatever. You see, the, the problem with the problem of suffering is we really think we can do it like it's math, but you can't do it like it's math. It's not a simple equation. It's not even a complicated equation. It's actually equation, an equation like this one, which it'll take you a while to figure this out, but it's, that's actually an unsolvable equation. And there's, and there's two ways equations are unsolvable. Generally speaking, I'm not a mathematician, but you can shout at me, Tony, if this is wrong. Um, it's so nice that Nicole's not here for this. Um, one is, is that the proof can just be incoherent. Like, it's not coherent mathematics. Like, the, these, the, the operations inside stuff, they just don't, it's not a real problem, right? Um, or it's a, it just doesn't have a solution at all, right? The second is, is that it has variables in it. Like, it has X's and Y's, and you actually don't know enough of what those numbers are to actually solve it, right? So it's like X plus Y equals Z. Solve it. <laughs> You're like, um, you're gonna have to give me something here, right? Yeah, I mean, right? And here's the, here's the problem. The hiddenness of God in relationship to the problem of suffering is the second. It's, the, the problem with impugning God for his hiddenness or for his lack of explaining himself, it's not a simple equation like some people pretend. Like you listen to like a Sam Harris or a Richard Dawkins and you'd think it was this really simple equation. It's like X plus two equals four. What's X? Like it's, it's idiotically simplistic, right? Um, and if you want to hate God and be an atheist, that sounds very compelling. Some people are, are more nuanced than that and they realize that it's probably a little, a little bit of a complicated equation, but you can still get to the answer that God stinks. And um, the problem is, is that we can get really self-righteous in our complicated math. The reality is, is that the calculus of determining whether God should be less or more hidden and whether or not he should explain himself is an equation that is not solvable because you flat don't have the values for the variables that you need to work the math. And it is just flat hubris to think that you do. The reason you think you do is because you feel so emotionally compassionate, which is psychologically healthy. We feel so emotionally compassionate towards people who are dying or sick or poor or oppressed that we, that we, we wish more could be done for them and we want, and that's psychologically healthy. That's called love. The problem is, is that when your sinful nature gets a hold of that and starts whipping it around, it turns it into an accusation before God because what you really want is not to be told, great, as God's created viceroys and regents in the earth, you go out there and live sacrificially and lay your life down and live below your means and work hard and work towards the good and live ethically so that the world gets better. But because we don't want to hear that really— and because we want a simple answer, and because we want to be autonomous, it's very easy to take the real loving compassion that's part of our God-intended creativeness, and it gets whipped around into this accusation because we think we can do math we flat can't do. But what God says about himself is that both his self-revelation and his hiddenness is exactly the way he wants it. And so what he does not give us about his hiddenness or his revealedness is an explanation. He gives us just enough of the explanation 
to reveal something about himself and to show something about himself so that we can trust him, but not enough that we can cobble together an explanation so that we can trust our own math. He gives us a little bit in the front. He gives us a little bit in the back. Just enough to trust, not enough to put it all together. In the front material, in Romans 8, for example, he talks about what happened in creation in the fall. It's one of the reasons why the first three chapters of Genesis are incredibly important for Christian faith. God created the world, and he said it was very good. And then the relationship between all of the created order and God himself was broken when the pinnacle and viceroy and sovereign over his creation, the human beings he created to tend and care for and take out its creative potential, created a separation between him and his creation. And it says that part of the curse, it says this in Genesis 3, when it said, cursed is the ground because of you. And it says this in Romans 8, that all of creation itself was subjected to futility. Right? You look at people suffering, you look at hundreds of thousands of people dying in tsunami, and what is the feeling you have? Numbness, right? Or anger. It doesn't mean anything. What the, what the heck? Right? Just this feeling. Here's a more articulate word. Futility. Translated here, frustration. Not a great translation. The entire physical creation, all of the people in it, Everything in it was subjected to the futility of the curse and the consequent hiddenness of God until the redemption of all things. And then the final story is this, that this isn't where we're headed. What we're doing right now, this actually isn't it. This is part of a, of a salvation history that God is creating that is going to end in a place where God actually does judge, redeem, give eternal life, and bring in his rule and peace in a recreated creation completely. Now, you can say that's ridiculous, and I don't believe that, and that's just man-made and whatever. That's just religion. Look, if you want to be skeptical, fine. But here's what Christian faith believes, what God has taught in the scriptures. And if you're going to judge Christian, you have to judge it on its own terms. And on its own terms, it claims that this is leading to that. And if the God who reveals that is true, which I think you believe on other reasons, like the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, and on the basis of his word, I can believe both of those things. If that's true, then I don't have enough to, to calculate whether or not he's hidden or revealed enough. I don't have enough to calculate whether or not this is an explanation, but I have enough to make a decision about whether or not I'm going to trust the God who says that he's in charge and that he's good. And that, the Bible reveals everywhere, is actually God's intention. That's his intention. There's three responses you can have to this. So there's, there's lots of responses you can have to this. But if you're like, okay, how does this, like, how does this get applied? So there's, I'm just going to, three quick passages, three biblical responses. One is in Genesis 50. If you've never read the story of Joseph, the story of Joseph is one of the best narratives about the sovereignty of God in the whole Bible. And it, it sort of culminates in the doctrine of God's sovereignty in this verse. He's been thrown in, th he, was, he, was, he was sold into slavery by his own brothers. He was put in prison. He was falsely accused. So this is, this is a person who has been a slave. He's been falsely made a felon. I mean, you talk about injustices. He's, he basically walked through all of them. Through that, 
God put him in a place to be the prime minister of the most powerful nation of the time so that he could save the lives of thousands of people, both in that country and his own family. Finally, his brothers come to beg for his help because there's this huge famine in the whole region, and they realize that he's probably going to kill them because of what they did to him. Um, and Joseph's response is this. He says, don't be afraid. So he's talking to his brothers who sold him into slavery and tried to just destroy everything about his life because they, didn't, they thought he was a little cocky at 17. So just thought they'd cut him down to size. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, because he was willing to believe in the sovereignty of God, that was the lever by which he was able through all of what he went through to actually forgive. Because he would accept that. What that one of the things that's also important to recognize is this. If you will not accept that, because God requires obedience to walk into the thing he works for good out of your suffering, you have the ability to make sure that everything you've ever suffered counts for nothing. That's really important to recognize. Everything you've ever been through that you're waiting around for God to turn to good, the, the Bible actually says that God works for the good of those who, who believe him and who have been called according to his purpose. And the whole context of Romans is that God is completely sovereign, but he's working that good for those who will believe the gospel, trust him, and walk with it. If you won't, if all you'll do is be angry at the brothers, so to speak, to metaphor this to you, what, you, you're, what you're doing is you're, you're taking this big pile of stuff that's hurt you terribly that God actually does have the capacity to work for good and to, to bring things out of, and you're just throwing it in the garbage. It, the only thing it'll ever be is what they did to you. And ultimately what that comes down to is a disbelief in the sovereignty of God. And listen, you may think I'm saying that flippantly. Okay, I, can, I cannot even tell you the unspeakable things this week in my office that people told me they've suffered. I did not say that lightly. The second response is in terms of the cost of your sin. The, the normal human autonomous person says, my life should have gone better. I did just fine. Why didn't God make my life better? That's actually a really terrible attitude because your life is going almost for, I would, well, I think I would literally say for everybody theologically, but, but for the vast majority of us, it's not even close. Your life is going a heck of a lot better than you deserve. And um, there's this passage in Samuel where this guy, Eli, was a priest, and he was in charge of God's house, and he just didn't, he, he didn't have the guts to discipline his own sons who were priests. And so they were taking money, and they were, they were like eating food that, that wasn't for them, and they were doing things with women that I won't go into detail about. And God shows up and tells this little boy, Samuel, that like, he's done. His whole line, his kids are going to die. His whole line is done. He's going to die. And Eli's response to being confronted about his own sin, that his children and he are going to die, his response is, after Samuel told him everything, hid nothing from him, then Eli said, he's the Lord. Let him do what's good in his eyes. That's a response of faith. And um, I, I, my, my personal belief in interpreting that passage, it's hard to interpret, I actually believe Eli's going to be in heaven. I believe that he had, to, he had to face what was coming to him, but that he did repent, he repented, and that 
is what it is. And here's the good news. The good news is, is that that repentance is actually one of the things that's necessary for, for God's grace to flow. When you say, I deserve it, at that point, you can be the recipient of generosity without, without it damaging you, right? So like, it's Christmas time, right? You give a kid a gift, and they tear it open, and they're like angry they didn't get the right thing. What's the, what's the last thing that you should do for that child, right? The last thing is give them another present, right? It's like the worst, I mean, the worst possible, oh, well, Johnny, see if you like this one, right? I, I mean, no, you should tie them up and make them an ornament is what ought to happen, <laughs> right? But you, do, you, you wouldn't say, oh, Johnny, oh, I hope you like this one. You'd be like, you don't like that one? Fine. We're going to light the fire. I'm going to burn all the rest of the presents in front of you. Right? That might be a little harsh, but you got to do something. I mean, you got you to do something, right? And so I wouldn't really do that. I'm, we would do something, though. Um, and so, like, you've got, you can't do that. And so, like, if, if, you're, if you can't accept under God's providence that you deserve so much less than you have. You, you can't be happy. <laughs> you can't, and you can't accept that everything you have is, is generosity. And so, you, you, once somebody's generous, whatever they give you is good. Right? As, and this reality takes away the sense of entitlement, allows you to be thankful, creates the possibility for joy, and opens you up to everything that God would love to give to you that he's not going to give some spoiled, angry brat of a child that, that you desperately need, but he, he's, he's just not going to be unloving. And until you go, listen, I did this. All this stuff— yeah, a couple people did things to me, but a lot of it was I actually put myself in the position for that. That person left me. I should have never trusted them. I should have known long before that they were the wrong person to get involved with. Yes, my work treated me bad, but honestly, I've been not working really hard for years. I, like, yes, I had this health problem, but I didn't take care of myself at all. Right? And yet, the minute you go— then you have the possibility of receiving graciousness and generosity because you're in a place now where generosity will heal you rather than make you sicker. Does that make sense? Oops, that's the wrong way. And then lastly, um, how do you repent of making responsibility autonomy? You see, the Bible never says, and this is a complex philosophical thing, and we can tell this later, but the Bible actually never says that you have free will in the widest possible sense. It never says that. It does assume everywhere that you are morally responsible for your actions, okay? Which means, to a certain extent, you have a certain amount of freedom. But nobody is going to get angry at anybody because they didn't fly here and drove their car. Like, you hate the earth because you drove here. Well, you can't fly, so we're not angry at you because you drove, Right? They're, everybody has limitations to the choices that they can make. We are responsible before God relatively and specifically on the basis of the, ch basis of the choices we actually make. How God's sovereignty interacts with that, your guess is as good as mine. The problem comes in when we think because we're autonomous decision-making creatures, because we know we are. We know we make decisions, right? Unless our brains, it's all just chemistry and it's all illusory, which that'll be fun. Um, 
But, but because we believe we make choices, because we believe we have decisions, because we believe we're going in certain directions, all of a sudden we can go from recognizing that we're a responsible creature to think that we're an autonomous creature, to think that we're self-defining, self-believing, self-acting, self-accountable, self— And when that happens, that's called idolatry, which is a cosmic treason— that is to claim you are sovereign against the one that is truly sovereign. That's why atheism isn't morally neutral. Right? There is a character in the Bible that this functions um, in relationship to. Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king of his time, king the king of Babylon. He was Nebuchadnezzar the Great. And he thought he was great, and he really believed he was great, and he was worshipped as God. And there was this one point in his life where he just went buck nuts crazy for seven years. Like, eating grass, didn't cut his nails, like, like the, he describes it in Daniel as the mind of an animal. And then, after seven years, God restored his sanity. And this is how Daniel describes his reaction. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion, as in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar's, right? And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. One of the most important steps related to God's sovereignty is accepting and embracing and recognizing that you are a responsible creature, but not an autonomous one. You don't define what dignity is. You don't define what truth is. You don't define what good is. You don't define what evil is. You don't define what love is. You don't define what hope is. You don't define—you don't define any of those things. You discover those things. We can discover things. We are responsible to the things. And under God's rule, he has given us things that we creatively do. In that sense, we create things as sub-creators. But we are not autonomous. And until— You raise your eyes to heaven, and you admit that. You you can't really be a Christian. You can't be free to know God the way he really is. You will be broken by your confusion about the liberty that you actually have. You will mistreat people terribly because you will not be able to build the requisite humility to be virtuous in every situation, especially in the most morally difficult ones. And you will not be able to submit yourself to all the goodness of God's plan and direction because you won't obey him. And you will therefore not also not see your need of the gospel, your need of Christ's death and resurrection, and therefore you will not be filled with joy about it and you will not be incredibly thankful for it. The doctrine of God's sovereignty, that he speaks and shows himself but never explains himself, that his self-revelation and his hiddenness are exactly the way he wants it to be. That he is sovereign over all things. Everything's are all, all things are rightly under his jurisdiction and proportionately under his control. And that those truths are not Christianity's greatest liability. It's one of its most joyful strengths and one of the most freeing doctrines that could ever happen to you if you deeply believed it and lived according to it. That is what the gospel and the scriptures and the life of Jesus teach from beginning to end. Embrace it. Let's pray. Father, um, please help us to embrace what it means to follow, trust, and love, and honor you. 
please help us to know what it means to accept your sovereign rule, to realize that you have providence. Don't, don't let us waste anything that has hurt us. Help us not to demand explanation when we can be enjoying your self-revelation. And please help us to see these things as they all come together in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And help us to take comfort in the complexity of the gospel in the midst of its simplicity, to know that we just are, we are not ready, we are not placed for any kind of explanation, but we have the hope from that verse in 1 Corinthians 13 that someday we will know fully, even as we are fully known, that we can have some comfort that there is some kind of way you will share with us some things when things are finally completed and an explanation is possible. We pray that you help us to trust you rather than to simply demand explanations from you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.